Thanks for tuning in to the Seattle Lee Moodcast. I'm Tamara Lubicki. Before the intro, I'd like to preface that this interview by Daniel Zana of our guest Avi Rosenfeld was done in February 2020, before the pandemic lockdown. Here goes. In today's episode, Daniel Zana interviews Limud Seattle 2018, 2019, and 2020 presenter Avi Rosenfeld. Avi discusses his Jewish journey from going to Israel after high school, not being able to read the Aleph Bet, to leading the Merkaz congregation in Seattle and serving as a hospital chaplain at the same time. He reflects on the Jewish values that unite these two pursuits the power of listening to another human being and without trying or wanting to change them in any way but just listening to them is truly one of the most important things that Judaism has to teach. Avi, thanks for being here. You're very welcome. Thanks for being here, too. So, yeah, I see you fairly often at shul and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but I feel like uh, shul conversations board are... Board meetings as well. Board meetings, Always yeah. Always exciting. Development meetings, all those things. But I feel like shul conversations are like between bites of chulent mm-hmm. or between like wrangling mm-hmm. children, so you don't often get to know someone. Yeah. So I have some questions here, but we can riff and kind of sure. freeform. Can we go back to the dawn of time? Um <laughs> And, like, tell me a, a bit about your upbringings and, and sort of what that was like. Sure. Upbringing. So I refer to my family as Western Wandering Jews. I was born in Montrose, Colorado, because there's no hospital in Telluride, Colorado, where I lived for mm-hmm. six years. But my family moved around to Tucson for a year and Albuquerque for three years and then up to Bellingham, Washington. The summer I turned 13. And what do you attribute all the wandering, the... Ants in the pants. What was the... Uh, I guess my parents liked to live in beautiful places. And uh, how would you say you were raised, like, Jewishly? Uh, oh, yeah, that's a good one. So, very secularly, I guess, is how I mostly describe it. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we celebrated Hanukkah. I do remember two different Passover seders in my very young life. One was a community seder that my parents led in Telluride. Okay. And this would have been in the early, early 80s, mm-hmm. like 80 or 81. And then one was with my grandparents, my mother's parents in Albuquerque, and they were what I refer to as from Reform Jews. Okay. So they were big parts of their synagogue, and I learned all the blessings from my grandfather's deep, sonorous voice. Oh, amen. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, so it's kind of like long, kind oh, of yeah. And he did, yeah, and he, yeah. Yeah, he loved Judaism. He loved Israel. Sure. And both my grandparents were a huge part of my Jewish identity growing up. And then flash forward a little bit. So where did you end up going to college? Well, it's kind of a a drawn out story. It went about 13 years before I finally finished my BA, honestly. Because that's why I started it two years into my high school time because of running start here in Washington State. Okay. So I jumped at the chance to go to community college. I was ready to drop out of high school, honestly. You were done with it. The social BS was too much. Too much. And it was community college is what I imagined high school should be like people that were there to learn because they enjoyed learning. Like focused and kind of, mm-hmm. yeah. It's good that you recognize that and kind of like found the environment. That, oh, yeah. That thank God. It was well the first you. year that Running Start was offered in Bellingham, at least. And, yeah. oh, yeah, jumped on it. And as did all my friends. I mean, 
A lot of cool kids left high school, that's all I have to say. It was the conceptual physics class that actually, when I think back on it, led to my desire to go to Israel. Was there a specific teacher or student? She was an atheist, yeah. Sarah Julin was her name. I forget where her family came. She had adopted this child from India. She was such a cool, amazing teacher. She uh -huh. loved teaching. She was just one of those amazing teachers. Yeah. I think, she, as far as I know, she's still teaching up there. Uh-huh. Don't know. Did not stay in touch, but... Yeah, I got interested in black holes, which led me to the Dancing Wooly Masters, this book, and then the Tao of Physics was another book that okay. was suggested to me. Not familiar. But. Uh, so this was just kind of my entrance of where physics meets spirituality and okay. then back into Judaism, just a desire to learn more about my heritage All right. at the time, as long as it had nothing to do with religion. Explain that. I feel like I missed a... I missed something there because, like, you were talking about physics and black holes, and then you got into like wanting so to explore this is, your. So the, the Dancing Willie Net Masters was like a book from the '70s, I think, or late '60s, maybe, uh -huh. similar to Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. If you're okay. familiar with that, I never read, read that it. one. Didn't read that one myself, but that just were taking some of the ideas of the '60s and modern physics of the time, and sort of seeing these resonances with mostly Eastern philosophy and spirituality. So reading those things made me, I guess, intuitively feel like there would must be something connected to Judaism and okay. along these roads as well. But my opinion was very colored by, not that I read any marks, but the phrase religion is the opiate of the masses sure. just was had a profound effect on uh -huh. my my feelings about religion as well as whatever it is, I guess, popular media uh -huh. loving to make fun of all the many opportunities religious people give the yeah. viewing public opportunities. Yeah. To so at that point you weren't really connected or like a observant, or not observant, but like you weren't... No, we, you weren't, never, we never were members of a synagogue community. Okay. There was a brief period in Tucson. That's a whole other story, which was kind of really for my brother, I'm sure, but also for me, since my older brother had this horrible experience with, uh, I'll just give a brief synopsis. Sure. Experiential education on the Holocaust uh -huh. for nine to 11 year olds. Yeah. So this was the edge of things in the 80s, or maybe it was just some one misguided person's yeah. idea at this uh, reform synagogue in Tucson. It sort of cemented my experience that the Holocaust was front and center for uh, what okay. Jewish identity was all about. Got it. That led, and I think of my generation, it's a huge part of why so many Jews of my generation have want nothing to do with Judaism. Right. Because that's not something to inspire someone to want to be Jewish, right. if that's all there is. Yeah, there's so much more to Judaism, and to have that be your entry point. I feel like there's so much more positivity and warmth and welcoming things to it that and especially as someone who doesn't have like direct holocaust connection yeah. i feel like yeah that's not a good entry point but i guess to go back to your story like i feel like there's a difference between reading a book and feeling like a connection to judaism versus getting a plane ticket and flying to israel like how did that happen it's <laughs> <laughs> a good question through my grandfather, I knew that he was a huge supporter of the JNF. He was a forester himself in New Mexico. His love of Israel definitely made me curious at the very least. I had gone on a trip right after finishing my AA degree through community college mm -hmm. and high school to Mexico with a friend of mine. Uh, we went for three weeks in Mexico and a week in Guatemala. 
Okay. And it kind of inspired the wanderlust. I really wanted to do more traveling after that. But I didn't want to just travel as uh, a tourist. And so there was a magazine, I don't know if it's still around, called Transitions Abroad, which was all about short-term work, traveling okay. through short-term work. And so the Moshav system in Israel was a big part of that, as well as uh, woofing, yep. willing workers on organic farms. Yep. And so these were the two things with another friend that kind of led me to this plan to start woofing in Scotland and then fly down to Israel for Whoa. the winter okay. and then travel into Europe in the spring. And then other things happened that sort of changed that up. Did that Israel trip stick? Were you there for a while or did you come back and forth? That was formative for sure. Uh huh. Yeah, that was six months in Israel, including three weeks in Egypt and a week in Jordan, traveling in between Purim and Pesach, actually, as we're Whoa. coming up to these yeah. times. But that was some very amazing experiences that happened to me in the town of Tzfat, where mm -hmm. my great-great-grandfather is buried in the cemetery there. Okay. Um, and in Jerusalem, it was, as they say, man plans and God laughs. Yeah. When, when you think about the plan of going to Israel to learn about my heritage, as long as it had nothing to do with religion. I feel like it's hard to go to Israel and not feel the pull of religion in some way. Right. You have to go out of your way in Israel to like not eat kosher food or to not bump into like a minion somewhere. Yeah, but I didn't even have, like, I did not know the whole alphabet yeah. at the time. And so I was a huge curiosity to the El Al security folks. Oh, okay. This is on my flight from Heathrow to Tel Aviv. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get into the whole story, but I had just been refused entry into England, actually, me and my friend were reasons I can go into another time. Sure. It was really just our naivete in saying that we were going to work on these farms. Yeah. And they were like, where are your working papers? And we were like, working papers? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we spent 24, farm, hours, 24 hours in London, and then he went his own way because he wasn't planning on going to Israel. And yeah. I got a ticket, a one-way ticket to Israel. There was a kid named Avram Benjamin Rosenfeld. That's my name on my passport. Mm-hmm. Didn't know the Aleph, Aleph Bet, yeah. had a one-way ticket to Tel Aviv, mm. and had just been refused entry into, <laughs> into this oh, country. Red flag, yeah. Lots of red flags going on, yeah, and yeah. had it sort of a semi-plan. It was about this Moshav place yeah. I was going to get on, to like uh, go right. work on a Moshav. And yeah. Three different security folks at El Al interviewed me. I was sweating bullets. I was 98% sure I didn't need to have working papers to do this whole Moshav plan. Yeah. But that 2% was sweating me out. Yeah. So amazingly, they let me on the plane. So if it's okay, I want to jump forward sure. a little bit. I want to get to like the Hove of eight years. Oh, yeah. That's so a how? ways away. Okay. So we still have a... Oh, my goodness. Because okay. you've got five years in Badayan. Okay. We can talk about that if you want. It's a huge part of who I am. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. And that's after this initial trip, right? So we're talking about how I got to Badayan. So that did happen the first trip to Israel in that four-month period. Can we step back and just yeah. explain what Badayan is? For oh, those? sure. Well, it's a yeshuv and a yeshiva in what's known as a Gush Etzion. Some people refer to it as the West Bank. Mm -hmm. And it's a unique place in Israel from the places I visited, for sure. And at the time I went there in that first trip to Israel, if you had told me that two and a half years later, I think, no, even a year and a half later, I would be back there learning there, I would have told you you were off your rocker. Yeah. It's out of the box. And yeah. it's something that I very much appreciated. 
So I think maybe we skipped over just a little bit. So yeah, there was a whole section in there in my first trip to Israel and visiting Tzfat and my great-grandfather's grave. Anyway, my first experiences with prayer, which were really, really amazing, kind of scary amazing, just shocked me to a, to a certain degree, just opening myself up to the possibility still didn't get me to believe that in God, I would get. I would say. That was mm-hmm. one of the questions I had for Rav Natan when I got to Bad Ayin, was it, is it okay for me to learn here if I don't believe in God? Mm-hmm. And he kind of laughed and said, sure. <laughs> I feel like for me, prayer, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to get into prayer. And I feel like as someone who just put away his mandolin into a case, I can only assume that maybe part of your entrance into prayer was through the melodies and the music. Mm, huge part of my entrance into Judaism. Yeah, so that's one of my questions is like more of a present day Avi, but also like for past Avi, let me ask, let me channel him and talk to him. Mm-hmm. How did the music or the melodies or the songs that you were hearing in Badayan, how did that plug you into the prayers? So that was before Badayan. I think that was just the first time I was Friday night at the Kotel or Ooh, in yeah. Nachlaot. Yeah. I mean, it was it was all part and parcel of Honestly, even with these amazing experiences I was having, I was actively looking for reasons not to be involved with observant Judaism. Sure. Having come from a reform background, mm-hmm. like a very minimally reform background, but I kind of, that was, I guess, my comfort zone to the degree that I had one. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like a lot of changes in a very, very big way. And at the time I had this, I needed to decide all or nothing. And so I kind of had seen a small breadth of what the orthodox landscape had to offer, mm-hmm. but it was also very much influenced by my time in the old city at a place called the Heritage House. I don't know if you ever experienced Is that it. Aish? So it was its own thing, but it was a feeder school. Like you could stay there free hostel in old city in Jerusalem. Yeah. The person who started it, it was, as far as prayer goes, I've never seen someone pray the way that he did and I'm blanking on his name right now, but he was one of the most amazing people I've ever seen pray at the Kotel. How could you describe it? It it? was like he was trying to leave his body. Like in the repetition, he was like rising up on his toes, not just at Kedusha. (laughs) He was screaming almost at God. Inside the Kotel, like right between the outside and the inside portion, if you're familiar. Yeah. And it was just a mincha during the week. (laughs) Just a regular... Just a, like a mincha, people were just coming, like congregating from Indian factory kind of style. Anyway, so the Heritage House. You could stay there for more than the three days mm-hmm. if you went to one of the yeshivot, which was either Eisha Torah or, or Sameach. Yeah. So yeah. that was really what I refer to as the hook in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, a huge part of what I was kind of two hands pushing away. Yeah because I really felt like each one was like, oh, you're the lost lamb. You need to come with us and you need to come start learning here now. So it was one of the most important parts of my tshuva experience, my return to Judaism, was having an Orthodox rabbi tell me, maybe it's not time for you to be in yeshiva right now. So someone had said that to you? I had an Orthodox rabbi say that to me, who had his own yeshiva, and I'm sure he would have been happy to have another Talmud, but I think he could tell that I was a little bit wary yeah it was really what i needed to hear um yeah because it was really feeling like a hard sell um didn't know if i wanted to buy it some of the teachers i was exposed to there rabbi kiva tatz at orsa mayach sure Marty berger and gerald schroeder among many others at, at isha torah amazing amazing teachers yeah that, so there was definitely a spark there but at the time i was actively looking for reasons to 
not be involved. To not get yeah. the hook, as it were. So you had spent many years in Badayan and ended up studying there, is that right? So I returned to America, started at the University of Washington in my junior year yeah. in comparative religion and lasted two quarters, I believe. Mm -hmm. And when my parents asked me, like, Avi, why can't you study about this stuff here? I said, well, imagine if you wanted to learn scuba diving and you had the option to learn inside a really big pool, nice warm and heated pool, or the Great Barrier Reef. If this is before the Great Barrier Reef was sustaining as much damage as it unfortunately has, where would you want to learn to scuba dive? And so that was why I went back to Israel to find a yeshiva. And I was not planning on going to Badayan. I was going to check it out because I didn't really, never seen the learning there. I had only seen Shabbat and it was wild. So I decided, interestingly enough, to go check it out on Purim. And afterwards, when I came back after Passover, there were some students who were there where they were like, wait a second, weren't you here visiting on Purim? And you want to come here? <laughs> you came back, whoa. <laughs> yeah, because Purim and Badayan was a whole other thing. It was, but I, on its own, is like next level. But Purim, <laughs> which is kind of a next level holiday, to then do it in Badayan is like... Yeah, it was definitely one of the many transformative experiences I had in Eretz Israel. So how many years did you end up staying in Israel before you came back to the States? The first trip or the second trip? <laughs> okay. Let's uh, just say like cumulatively. I was in Israel the first time for five months and then traveled in Europe and for four months. Mm -hmm. So finished off that whole plan yeah, yeah. eventually, and that was also amazing. Then I was here in Seattle at the UW for two quarters, and then I returned to Israel to decide if I wanted to be Orthodox, essentially, and big part of the story that we skipped over was my experiences with Livnot or Libanot and Israelite uh, and the many amazing teachers there, Rabbi Nathan Lopez Cardozo being one of the most influential, Rabbi Arya Ben David as well, and Rabbi Yehoshua Khan, who later became my Rebbe in Badayan. So returned to Israel and ended up staying for five and a half years, getting married, having my first child, our first child, then decided to come back to the States and finish my BA, finally. So this is the 13 years okay. that I was referring to. Okay, got it. It's quite a bit. I feel like if we had another podcast, we would definitely... For sure. So came back to Seattle with 60-day-year-old, I think. We mm -hmm. left Israel right after Michael's Pidyon Haben, mm -hmm. and uh, that's 30 days following the birth. Mm -hmm. And finished off my BA here, then made the decision to go to Yeshivat Chovevei Torah in New York for five years and pursue okay. ordination. Yeah. So my question is, as someone you know who initially was resisting Judaism to then want to willingly become a rabbi and become ordained at Chovevei Torah? I was really interested in pursuing something in counseling, and I really missed learning. And eventually those two lines led up to mm -hmm. Chovevei Torah, which Dr. Michelle Friedman started the most amazing pastoral counseling. A fifth of our time in yeshiva, one day a week, is devoted to pastoral counseling education and experiences. That, along with the learning, led me into the rabbinate. At the same time, throughout that entire time, I really didn't know what kind of rabbi I wanted to be, but then chaplaincy came on the radar, and 
that one-on-one -on -one interaction are often one-on-one. -on -one. There's often families, which I'm getting more and more used to dealing with a lot of people in one room in mm -hmm. an intense situation. But I would, I think I prefer that to being just in front of a bunch of people right. in a congregational setting. Not really my happy place. I didn't really think about it too much, but it's, it seems like the two go very much hand in hand. Well, there's times when those those hats get kind of scrunched together, yes, and yeah, those are challenging for yeah. sure. But it's also really freeing to be able to have those different hats. Yeah. Because as a chaplain, unless someone asks me for my opinion as an Orthodox rabbi, I don't need to be the Orthodox rabbi for everyone. Right. As a hospice chaplain, how do you think that informs your work as a rabbi? And sort mm. of, and how do you think that your chaplain, uh, your rabbi work, <laughs> it's, and it's interesting know, vice versa. my work as a rabbi often, and as you know, is on Shabbat. Yeah. So there's a whole issue of Shabbat that you're not supposed to really, uh, not to say that you can't uh, be in grief and mourning, but it's not something you're supposed to publicly express. Mm -hmm. And so talking about death and dying on Shabbat, not really like a, a topic I think most people want to get into. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that is the main part of my work as a chaplain. So mm -hmm. I think it has sensitized me in a very broad way to the depth of compassion that exists within Judaism mm -hmm. uh, and within all human beings. And that's really the main part of the chaplain skills that I think is very important for being a rabbi is just being able to sit with people who definitely don't think the way I do or mm -hmm. believe the things I believe, but still just to be with them as a human being in the most vulnerable time of their life. Right. So being able to be in that space and be aware of my projections that are, I believe we as human beings are constantly projecting, and to be able to put those to the side and really just try to be with another human being. It's really uh, changed the way of uh, how I, I understand what Shema Yisrael, listen Israel, is or one of the things it means and why it's so central in our liturgy and theology. The power of listening to another human being and without trying or wanting to change them in any way, but just listening to them is truly one of the most important things that Judaism has to teach Jews and all human beings. What initially made you want to become a chaplain? So in my time at YCT, Chovevei Torah, there are a week, two, three weeks at a time where you, for one day of the week, you go down to the hospital. So this was, oh my goodness, I'm forgetting the names of the hospitals uh, in Midtown or somewhere Mount in Manhattan. Mount Sinai, St. Luke's, um, Roosevelt. Maybe it was Roosevelt. Gosh, it's been uh, it's general been, it's hospital. Been a few years. <laughs> <laughs> One of those big hospitals, okay. and there was a Jewish chaplain that was mm -hmm. on staff there, and they talked us to about CPE, which is clinical pastoral education. That's all chaplains, no matter what denomination they come from, mm -hmm. go through that. Sidebar: I'd love to work on a project with you about a documentary traveling around the states mm -hmm. uh, and going to different spiritual care mm. departments around yeah. America because I'm convinced they are both one of the keys to bringing love, peace, and happiness to the world mm -hmm. as well as just all so crazy in their own way. Yeah. Um, I think it would be a hilarious documentary. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> and so then it was really, I mean, at this point I believed that not only does God exist, but that God really is in charge of everything. So through this is referred to as hashkacha pratit in Hebrew. 
Do you like that translation, divine providence? No, it's one of those it's one of those many situations in which it, there's just such a Christian lens that most English translations of Hebrew oh, cause that? the listener, even subconsciously, to uh-huh. think of right. okay. that it gets over the idea. Mm-hmm. But as with all Hebrew terms, there's such a depth of of meaning, and even just how the Rambam understands it versus how. Right. The Hasidic world understands it. So I believe it was very much hashkacha uh, pratit mm-hmm. that very late in the game to get into a residency for CPE. That's mm-hmm. a nine months mm-hmm. course at an intensive, usually at a hospital or a prison, or you have to apply months in advance. Mm-hmm. And so I sent out emails when I was looking for something that I was going to be doing after I finished my mm-hmm. ordination yeah. to all the places here in Seattle and. One of the organizations had just had someone drop out, mm-hmm. and a big part of CPE is diversity. Yeah. And as a Jewish person, I represented the diversity ah, uh, on the team. So even though there was another person who I later met and became very good friends with who was waiting for that spot, right. I got the spot, and right. uh, that's how I got into a professional chaplaincy. So someone comes up to you, and you're in an elevator, and you mm-hmm. you know you say what you do and things like that. And so, how do you pitch uh, Merkaz Seattle? When I, we were originally interviewed about Merkaz, I said that the first question I wanted to ask new people there was, "What makes you joyful about Judaism?" Mm-hmm. I find I don't ask enough people that that come through the doors. I feel that's such an important question to ask. In reaction to what we talked about before with growing up in the 80s and the Holocaust being at the center of what I thought Jewish identity kind of meant in America, Mm -hmm. that is such an important part of what it means to be a Jew in the 20th and 21st centuries. But the kernel really needs to be joy. My experience with New York Judaism, I spent 11 years there after college and my experience in Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn. The first question was never, what brings you joy in Judaism? It was, can you guess? <laughs> Where do you daven? Not even. It was, what do you do? Where do you live? How much do you make? <laughs> <laughs> Let me see your W-2s. I always joke with my <laughs> wife about that. Like, uh, But no, it's like, uh, what do you do? Where do you live? Oftentimes, like, where did you go to school? And then sometimes when you would get to, like, the lunch crowd it'd be like do you own or do you rent like that's very new york so i feel like asking someone like what brings them joy i feel like is a great question so i'll pose it to you so what brings you joy in judaism the torah of rabbi nachman any torah where i'm learning with other people that are excited about it just that energy of really seeing oneself in the torah and in the people that you might be arguing vociferously about. I get joy in singing with other people, with mm-hmm. other Jews specifically, for Kabbalah Shabbat, for Hallel, for Ashrei before Mincha. Joy is really one of those things that it's just to what degree we want to allow it space within ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get joy from just being around my kids, from playing Frisbee. These are not specifically Jewish things, no. but... But yeah, it's important that one not compartmentalize their Judaism and the rest of their life. It's a huge part of the idea of Purim coming up. The power of telling your story, Purim into Pesach. The power of seeing God in your story and other people's stories. It's a choice we all have. And uh, one of Rabbi Nachman's 
famous Torah is the Torah that precedes it, Reish Pei Aleph 281, before Torah 282, I think is very much about the idea of the spiritual practice of finding where God is hiding in the world. So, would you mind like singing a song for us and playing a, oh, sure. maybe a nigun or something like that? Yeah, so uh, I'd have to give a shout out to the Nigun Collective and Dina Levitan for uh, helping to get that going. And it's also part of Limud. It's a, it really was born in Limud, in a sense, two years ago. Uh, I just brought my mandolin and sat down in the pub and started playing, and people started sitting down and singing, and we decided to make it a more regular thing. Awesome. Well, thanks um, so much for chatting. I'll, I'll, I guess we'll go out on this. Take it away. All right. Wow, what tune to do. It's like your children. It's hard to pick your favorites, you know? It is. This is a tune that goes back to the Breslov Hasidim, like in my long list of rabbis who have influenced me. Achron, Achron, Chaviv, as they say. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov continues to be a really wonderful influence. So this is uh, the words to this. I'm not going to sing the words, but uh, it's to B'motze Yomenucha. It's a Motzi Shabbos song. So here it's Sunday. It's uh, still in the Motzi Shabbos kind of vibe. I learned this, though, from Roz Hartman. you for sharing your story with us. My pleasure. I hope it inspires others to share theirs.
The Seattle Lee Moodcast was recorded at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamar Lubicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Thanks again to our guest, Avi Rosenfeld. Thanks also to our interviewer, Daniel Zana. Daniel Zana is a filmmaker based in Seattle and a board member and congregant of Merkaz Seattle.